Hello, hello. Welcome to Not Another Business Podcast, where we break down business news and cultural events according to rules we have entirely made up. I'm KJ Miller, ex-corporate consultant and current CEO and co-founder of Minted Cosmetics. And I'm Daniela Dektar mccarthy ex-corporate lawyer and current general counsel at Ness. And fun fact, KJ and I have been friends since our acapella days at Harvard. We are indeed that cool, peeps. Um, I have a disclaimer. I start every episode this way. The views that we express today are our own and not those of our companies. Today on the show, we are talking about D2C. Is it alive? Is it dead? It's been at the forefront of many business prognosticators' minds in 2022. <laughs> at the end of Q1 of this year, DTC Darlings showed some dismal performances and led many to say that it's dead. Um, and now we're nearing the end of the year. And the question is, were those folks right or totally wrong? And uh, I'm particularly excited to hear your take on it. <laughs> yeah, you know, I will say I have heard from many a folk, many an investor that D2C is, if not dead, <clears throat> breathing its last breath. Mm. So as a D2C and digitally native brand, um, you know, that's that's a little scary to think about. So we're living in a whole new world and, you know, I am excited to dive into it. Um, but first, our shameless plug. Okay, today... I'm plugging Minton Cosmetics today <laughs> and every day. And especially, I actually want to give a shout out to Alta. I was at Alta this week. I was in Chicago. And I just think they're such a great partner. And Alta is the exclusive destination for our Skin by Minted Foundation, the exclusive retail destination, I should say. So if you want to try it, if you've been thinking about it, Ulta is the place to go so that you can try, find your shade, see how lovely it is in person. So head over to Ulta and try Skin by Minted and all of our Minted Cosmetics faves. What about you, Danny? What are you plugging today? I am plugging the Nest card. It is a credit card that rewards you for health and wellness spend. That's spend at all of your favorite health and wellness merchants. You get six X points on all those transactions and two X on everything else. Um, we are waiving the annual fee for the first six months. After that, it would be $3.99 every year. But we've got benefits attached to the card that make it well worth it. So head over to nestwell.com, N-E-S-S-W-E-L-L.com to reserve your spot on the wait list. Awesome. Let's get back to the show. All right, folks, this week we're going to get right into our main topic. Um, if you're new to the show, what we always do is start with the facts. We lay out what we know to be true, then we move into speculation where we give our opinions and hot takes, and then the verdict for our final thoughts. So, KJ, tell us all the facts, the basics that we need to know when it comes to D to C. Okay, well, first of all, D to C stands for direct to consumer. I'm sure all of our very, very smart listeners knew that, but just in case you didn't, and this is a model essentially where you're doing exactly what it says. You are selling directly to consumers. And in so doing, you're essentially skipping the middleman of a retail partner, a wholesale partner. So <clears throat> traditionally, I should say historically, if you were to start a brand, in my case, a cosmetics brand, and then you wanted people to actually learn about that brand, you would need to approach a Macy's, a Sephora, a Nordstrom, someplace people purchased cosmetics because mm -hmm. that's how you are going to get in front of your customer. That's where we as a society were doing our shopping and finding finding out about brands. And so 
you would start there. What has happened in the last, call it 15 years or so, is brands started realizing we don't need to go to a Macy's. We don't need to go to a Target in order to get our brand in front of people. We can hang our own shingle online, mintedcosmetics.com, bonobos.com, warbyparker.com, and we can sell directly to our consumer Mm -hmm. that way. And in so doing we end up keeping a lot more of the margin because don't forget, if you do sell through Target, well, Target's going to take half of the price, uh, you know, hopefully only half. There are definitely retailers out there that take more than half, uh, but Target's taking half, right? And so this way you're saying, actually, I'm going to bypass Target. I'm going to keep the whole kit and caboodle. Mm. Um, And so that model really has started taking off in the last 15 years. So when people, when you hear investors talking about D2C, when you hear the media talking about D2C, what they're really talking about isn't just companies selling directly to the consumer, because, I mean, I think you could argue that that's been happening since the dawn of currency. Um, (laughs) What they're really talking about is sort of these digitally native Mm. consumer brands. So the people focusing on selling their products on .com. So that is broadly the definition. And is it also like a hallmark of D2C, not just that end point of, okay, you're selling to the consumer online, but that you're controlling basically the entire fulfillment process from manufacturing to delivery? Is that, would you say that's also kind of the key component of D2C or not necessarily? I would, although that that component looks a bit different depending mm. on who you are. So like, for instance, I'll again, use myself as an example, Minted Cosmetics, we, while we, uh, for our .com, we, I guess you could say, own the fulfillment process. We don't own our fulfillment center mm. versus mm. someone like Glossier, who actually does own a number of their fulfillment centers. I don't know if they own all of them, mm-hmm. but I know they own a number of them. Right. So that means I am contracting out a third party logistics provider to do my warehousing and my shipping and my picking and my packing. Glossier for Glossier, all of those people are employees. Mm -hmm. They're not contracting out. They Mm -hmm. own that facility. Um, So you don't it, 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 it depends. You own more of the process, but you can kind of pick and choose as a D2C brand as a D2C brand, how much of the process you're owning. Some companies, for instance, Shea Moisture, that's a hair company. For the longest time, I don't know if this is still true, but for most of their history, they actually manufactured every product in-house. So they mm. had a manufacturing facility. Again, I tend to partner with uh, fillers and manufacturers. So I'm, you know, I don't employ people who are making the cosmetics. I contract with manufacturers to mm-hmm. make the cosmetics. So it depends is the answer there. And if you didn't have a D2C component and you only sold via big box stores like Ulta or Target would all of those steps you just talked about, the contracting with manufacturers, the contracting with fulfillment centers look different or only some of them look different? Um, I think some of them would look a bit different because, you know, when I was looking for, for instance, a warehouse, a fulfillment center, Mm -hmm. I was looking for someone who had a lot of direct to consumer experience because it's Mm -hmm. very different shipping onesie twosies to every single consumer versus shipping whole cartons uh, to a retail partner, right? right? That's a different <clears throat> capability. It requires different pick pack um, standards. So I think that piece of it at least would look different. I don't know that my supply chain in terms of my contract, my, my manufacturers would look all that different. Probably not. Okay. Interesting. So we talked about, uh, or you mentioned kind of the theoretical pro, which is getting 
a larger portion of your margin, right? If you're selling direct to consumers without getting into mm -hmm. your opinions too much, let's talk about like theoretically or conceptually in an academic mm -hmm. sense, let's say pros and cons, both sides of D2C versus uh, selling through a retailer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think actually the biggest pro, so of course, yes, there's keeping the margin, but bigger than that is customer information. So the more you know about your customer, the smarter you become as a brand. And the smarter you become as a brand, the better you then serve your customer, right? So if you think about, again, if I use the example of selling through Target, Target isn't sharing all that much info about each consumer. Mm -hmm. Yes, they might share broadly, you know, it breaks down this percentage women versus men, this percentage uh, affluent versus, you know, uh, non-affluent. They, they might be willing to share some stats along those lines, but they're not sharing customer addresses, mm -hmm. right? They're not telling you where these people live. They're not, you don't understand um, how loyal they are. You, you don't understand if they're doing surveys to understand where else the guest is shopping. Mm. They're not sharing that survey with you. You know, so all of these things, whereas on my end, I survey my customer base multiple times a year. I am engaging with, obviously I have all of their, their customer information, their address, their email, so on and so forth, their phone number, we're texting them, we're emailing them, um, and we're learning about them. And so we, we are intimately familiar with who our, our .com guest is in a way we just can't be when it comes to retail. And I think information is king. So um, I would say that's probably one of the biggest pros is having that direct customer access. And then I think another big pro um, is, and you know, talk to any D2C brand who then made the transition to retail, but is, is having control over mm. how you show up to your customer, having complete control. Because on your.com, you can do whatever you want. You can change the homepage every single day. You can change your promotional strategy every hour if you want, you mm -hmm. know. Um, you can launch a new product whenever you want. You cannot launch a new product whenever you want with a target with mm, an Ulta, mm -hmm. with a Sephora. You can't say, hey, look, it's September and I've got this new thing and I want you guys to put it in store. Sephora might not want to reset their shelves in September. So then what are you going to do? Um, so I think that that control over how you show up for your customer is probably another big pro. Those are the ones that come to mind for me. Are, are there any other pros that come to mind? Uh, I do wonder, I mean, it's related to kind of the control of the customer, but I do see D2C brands constantly creating these like loyalty programs that get customers really interested. And I think, mm -hmm. you know, and that reward customers for engagement. So in addition to, you know, getting information directly from your customer and learning more about them, I think there's an element where you're also able to spur more enthusiasm for the brand. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great point from a loyalty, from a loyalty standpoint. I mean, it's something mm -hmm. all brands work really hard at right? Getting your customer to be loyal, to, to keep coming back. And again, that's just much easier to do when they're coming to you directly versus when they're in a store surrounded by hundreds, if not thousands of brands, there's no guarantee that when they come back to that store, they're going to right. look on that shelf and pick your thing again versus your, your, your neighbor. So yeah, I would say, I would okay, say, what about the cons? Pro. well, and this starts to get into why everyone's you know, kind of <laughs> hating on D2C brands at the moment and why 
the big guys, the Warbies, the Allbirds, the Glo- not classy, they're not public, um, the Caspers, you know, all these guys who went public are seeing, well, in Casper's case, Casper kind of had to bite the bullet, but uh, mm-hmm. uh, the stitch fixes, the rent, the runways, you're seeing their market cap really, really decrease. And it's because they're not profitable and they're not profitable. Most people would argue because marketing mm-hmm. and acquisition costs are too high. And so I would say this is probably the biggest con. Um, there are others, but the biggest con of being direct to consumer is acquiring every customer mm. is much more expensive. And that's because if you think about it, um, you're essentially paying for every eyeball that comes to your website one way or another, either you're paying directly because you've launched a paid advertisement in that person. Like you've literally paid for that person to get there or you're paying indirectly because you've launched a brand awareness campaign to get people to your site, you put up a bunch of billboards or you put up, mm-hmm. put up a bunch of subway ads that cost a lot of money. And maybe that's the thing that got the person to come to your site, but you still had to pay for that eyeball or you're paying for it through all the search engine optimization you're doing and the team you brought in to do SEO. Um, and so, yeah, maybe that gets you higher in the Google search rank and it, that feels organic, but mm-hmm. you still spend a lot of money to do that <laughs> search engine optimization. So one way or another, you are paying for every single eyeball that comes to your site. And you contrast that to selling again at a Target, at a Macy's, at a Nordstrom, at a Sephora. You're not paying for every single person who walks in that door because not everyone who walks in that door is coming specifically for you, but you still get the benefit from that person being in that store and discovering your brand. And if it's a big store like a Target, Mm. that's millions and millions and millions of people every day across every state coming in that you did not directly pay to interact with. So acquiring a customer is just a lot less expensive at a retail location, at a brick and mortar location than it is online. And what you're seeing is a lot of these brands, because they've been so focused on the, the digital piece of it for so long, they still haven't found profitability. Um, and that is why you see, you know, the market reacting the way it is, particularly when we are in an economic downturn. A lot of investors, uh, a lot of people who um, have invested in the stock market aren't necessarily willing to give these companies more time to figure it out. So I, I would say that's the biggest con. I think, I think another con is just this idea that Everything sort of is on mm-hmm. you as the brand. You know, you're you're handling all of the marketing, you're handling all of the back end, you're handling all of the finance, you're handling all of the accounting. I mean, one of the reasons you see companies like P and G or L'Oreal do well is because they don't need an accounting team for all f- 230 mm-hmm. of their brands, right? They don't need a finance, a separate finance mm-hmm. person for every single one of their brands. They don't need even a separate marketing, whole marketing team for every single one of their brands. They're able to sort of utilize economies of scale in a way that independent brands, D2C brands um, might struggle with. So just that that can be another con. But is that is that a con of... D to C as opposed to traditional retail or just like being an independent brand as opposed to a conglomerate? Yeah, I think you're right. I think it is probably a bit more um, a con of being an independent brand. 
Um, but I think it's exacerbated by the fact that if you're a D to C, you're already seeing mm-hmm. those higher acquisition costs. So if on top of that, as an independent brand, you're responsible for all of these other yeah. SGNA related costs that maybe you wouldn't be if you were housed um, by a bigger conglomerate, it, it just makes right. it hard to hit profitability. So yeah, you're right. That's more independent versus conglomerate, but being D to C sort of exacerbates the issue. In terms of acquisition costs being so much lower in retail stores, because you know you didn't have to put in all that money to get the particular set of eyeballs on your product that, you know, when someone walks into a Target, they just arrive there. But also on the flip side, I guess, but a Target or an Ulta has a million other products side by side next to yours, right? So it's interesting that still acquisition costs are so much lower. You know, you have to contend with competition, but just, I guess, the sheer volume of people who come mm-hmm. through, like that's worth it. And that brings down acquisition costs is what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. Interesting. Tremendously. When when you're talking about retail partners that mm-hmm. have that much that much volume yeah. and that many people shopping. Um, and still, even though there are hundreds of other brands, mm-hmm. they are space constrained. So it's not an unlimited right. number of brands. <laughs> I mean, the internet is unlimited, right? right? Like you'll never get to the last page of Google. So, <laughs> so when you think about competition, I mean, mm-hmm. they are space con- constrained. Um, and yeah, it's just the sheer volume of the number of people means you're going to get eyeballs on your brand. And if you can do a good enough job, mm-hmm with your packaging and with your messaging to get her interested, you're going to benefit. So I guess, you know, we're talking about whether D to C, um, you know, can last. Why, why did it take off the way it did in the first place? Mm -hmm. Well, so I think for a couple of reasons, um, one, and I talk about this all the time, I think consumers have gotten, used to the idea in the last 10 years, uh, 15 years or so that brands should be Mm -hmm. speaking specifically to them. And, and if you think historically about the retail model, because you work at doing all of your shopping at these big box retailers where sort of like, you know, it was very mass focused, your options when you were in any different, uh, you know, any different category, cosmetics, personal care, apparel, your options felt like, okay, this is what is being targeted to everyone. And I'll find this, Mm -hmm. my piece of this that works for me, but it's clearly being targeted to everyone. Then you had, you know, for instance, in 2007, Bonobos came along and and a lot of people do credit Bonobos with sort of like kicking off this D to C wave. You have Bonobos come along and say, you know what? Those pants that you're wearing, they do not look good on you. And the reason they don't look good on you is because they weren't really made specifically for you, with you in mind. So we're going to change that. We are going to make pants for men that actually look good mm. based on their, you know, their measurements and, and with, you know, different color palettes and all of these things. And we're going to be really specific. Um, and they sort of k- kicked it off. And then a lot of other people started saying like, yeah, actually, wouldn't it be better if the cosmetics you were wearing were meant for you? If the glasses mm-hmm. you were wearing were, you know, made with you in mind, if the hair products that you were putting in your hair were for your specific texture. And so I think this idea of customization and personalization um, just really took hold of consumers and a lot of brands um, 
arose trying to sort of like fill that gap um, and address that void of just better, more customized products for consumers. Um, and then I think also you just see the rise of the internet, right? Like people are spending more and more time online with the iPhone in 2008. All of a sudden we all had the actual internet in our pockets all the time, right? So you didn't have to go dish out your computer or sit down at a desktop. You could be anywhere and surfing the web. Um, and so I think those are two things that for sure led to the rise. You had also said that Facebook ads had enabled independent brands like yours to target specific groups really specifically more cheaply. I mean, we, I know we talked about how customer acquisition is still very high for D2C, but prior to Facebook, um, which has so much information on its users, very specific demographic information, it probably would have been impossible to have D2C, right? I, I think that's one of the things you had mentioned in the prior episode. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's a great point. I think Facebook ads definitely played a major role, particularly for the OGs in this space. So, you know, the Warby Parkers, the Glossiers, mm -hmm. the Dollar Shave Clubs, the Bonobos, like particularly for those guys played a huge role in helping them acquire customers cheaply. Now, Facebook ads since, you know, 2008 mm -hmm. have exploded mm -hmm. in terms of cost. Um, but in the beginning, they weren't as expensive and still, even to this day, can be seen as a, a cheaper alternative to right. things like TV commercials and, and, and billboards, right? So um, yeah, Facebook ads and, and, and digital ads, even, even paid search things uh, like, you know, Google paid search have certainly played a big role in the rise of D2C brands, which is why, you know, you've just kind of seen the space explode, you know. I think probably the last set of facts that folks should know before we head into speculation is basically what's been happening to some of the key D2C brands in the past, let's call it, year. As early as March of 22 of this year, um, D2C brands mm -hmm. lost billions in market cap, like year to date, right? So after Q1 2022, D2C brands were drastically underperforming kind of the rest of the market. I think on average, they lost 19% in market cap in just Q1 alone, while the rest of the S&P 500 had dropped over 11%. I, um, in prepping for this episode, looked at year-to-date figures, and they're even more bleak. Um, you know, you have brands like Allbird down 83% year-to-date in market cap. Stitch Fix is down 80% year-to-date. Figs which is like, I mean, talk about specific. They just make like scrubs um, down 71% year-to-date. Warby Parker, 64% year-to-date. And that's compared to the overall S&P 500, which is down 18%. You know, pretty, pretty different um, in terms of market performance. I mean, no one's having a great year, but it seems like D2C brands are having a particularly bad year. And from what I can tell... Uh, Experts are basically saying there are a number of factors that have contributed to D2C brands faring even worse. One, you just touched on rising Facebook ad costs. Um, we've discussed this in prior episodes, worse iOS privacy settings that are making advertising for D2C brands kind of less cost effective. Um, supply chain difficulties, high logistics costs. We all know that supply chain has been a mess uh, since COVID. And then there's looming inflation and interest rate rate hikes, which is not helping anyone in the market, but is 
particularly hitting D2C brands hard. So, you know, as we've alluded to, there are many who are looking at the picture of D2C brands and are basically proclaiming it dead. And then, of course, there are defenders. So without further ado, it's time for some speculation. KJ, you know, what what is what do you think? <laughs> I remember I am old enough to remember back call it seven, eight years ago when mm. everyone was saying retail was dead. And mind you, seven, eight years ago, I was working in retail. And I said <laughs> then, and I was right, mm-hmm. that retail was not dead. And we're seeing it now. Retail is thriving, right? What did happen was a lot of retailers had had to mm-hmm. die because they were not changing and they were not adapting to their customers' evolving needs. So you see, like, you know, I used to work mm-hmm. for Sears. You, you know, you see Sears bite the bullet. You've seen other big department store brands bite the bullet because they weren't changing with it in the evolving landscape, but retail was not dead. And the reason I never, ever, ever believed it was because I, like most consumers, knew that there would always be a world where I wanted to go in and touch and feel and discover mm-hmm. there, that that world would always exist and talk to the expert and understand. I mean, I don't know. I don't know about you, but when I was purchasing, for instance, my home appliances, my washer dryer, <laughs> I was not about to sit up online right, and right. try and figure out the washer dryer purchase. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> we had to go to Lowe's. We had to talk to some folks and yeah. that will always be the case for certain things in certain, you know, certain periods, certain certain experiences. So mm-hmm. that was me then. And let me just say now my mm. strong stance is D to C is not dead mm-hmm. and it is not going to die. What is going to happen and what is happening is mm. brands are having to evolve because I think what you saw, so I'll go back to this example of Bonobos. And by the way, I've, I've met and, and hung out with the, the founder of Bonobos, mm-hmm. Andy Dunn, great guy. But he'll be the first to tell you. They sold to Walmart for $300 million. They had to raise mm-hmm. $100 million to get there. And once upon a time, investors were willing to part with $100 million to get, right. you know, barely a 3x return. That time mm. does not, that time doesn't exist anymore. Right. And, and, and what the focus has been, and we've spoken about this on other episodes. What the focus was for a long time Mm -hmm. was just on growth, growth at any cost, growth by any means. Now, investors and the market Mm. expects profitability. And so the model that you had before, if that's not going to get you there, you've got to figure out how to shift to get to profitability because now that's what the expectation is. When D2C was new and hot, you know, call it from 2007 to 2015 <laughs> or whatever in the whatever mm-hmm. 20, 2017 that 10 year period, growth at any cost was fine. But now we're almost 20 years in and people are saying, "Oh, wait a minute." As it turns mm-hmm. out, the business fundamentals still matter and fundamentally mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. need to be turning a profit. <laughs> like fundamentally speaking, returning a profit makes sense like that that's still a necessity and so that's why you're seeing all of these companies get dinged by the market i mean you mentioned all these companies um their stock being down 70 80 percent the revenue is up right so and in and in the past Mm -hmm. in the past when your revenue was up investors came flocking oh you're still growing people are still excited about you 
I want to put money behind this brand. And now the metric has changed and expectations have changed. And what people are looking at isn't just the fact that your revenue was up 15%. They're looking at the fact that you still mm-hmm. lost $30 million in a single quarter. So you haven't figured out the business fundamentals yet. And that's what people care about. So do I think there will be more D to C darlings who maybe bite the bullet like Casper did and had to go back and, and, and be made private and still doesn't sound like has mm-hmm. found all that much success just yet? Yeah, 100%. Just like we saw with retail, you're either going to evolve. And by the way, minted cosmetics is not immune. I mean, we've completely shifted our strategy. I've, I've, I've spoken about this. We are mm-hmm. super focused on retail mm-hmm. in a way that we weren't even a year and a half ago. I just, I just spent, you know, time at Ulta because I was digging in on how do I get my brand to be mm-hmm. more productive, right? Like it is top of mind because I'm living in the same world as all these guys. So no, I personally do not think D to C is dead. I do think a lot of D to C brands are going to have to shift their thinking, probably focus on brick and mortar presence, probably focus on retail presence. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean you get rid of D to C because I think that's always going to be important to your business, but is it going to be able to be the only part of your business? I, I don't think so. So that's my speculation, but I'm very, you think there are things we've talked about that are unique to D to C that I just don't see going away to your point. Um, and that's, you know, community curation, curation of, of your, like really specific curation of your brand to the customer. I just don't think that those expectations on the part of consumers have changed. Like increasingly, I still think consumers, particularly millennials and Gen Z are looking to spend their money on brands that resonate with them. I think the shift of you know, very much being Mm -hmm. online, curating a particular uh, set of brand messaging. I don't see that going away at all. Now, I'm Mm -hmm. curious. I've seen three Warby Parkers open up in my neighborhood in the past, I don't know, let's call it six months. I know Allbirds is really increasing their brick and mortar presence. You just mentioned, you know, you think brands are going to have to shift to brick and mortar or retail. What do you think about the the brick and mortar shift specifically, you know, like, is that, I, I, I think when I see so many Warby Parkers, maybe Warby Parkers different, you really do want to try on glasses. But when I see like unique all bird stores, especially in New York city where rent is so high, I just wonder like, is that really the solution to be there instead of mm-hmm. being in a department store or like, you know, Foot Locker? I mean, I guess they're, you know, part of this is brand consistency, but that does, doesn't seem like in my core that feels like that can't be the solution. But what do you think? Uh, yeah, I, you know, I have struggled with this. I have once upon a time really thought I wanted yeah. to start opening minted doors. And I got to tell you, I, I pulled away <laughs> from that quick, fast and in a hurry when I started actually doing the math around, you know, right. opening a store, keeping it open. Um it is incredibly expensive. I think the Warbies and all birds of the world have, they've, yeah. they've spent enough money on brand awareness in these last 10 years that now when they open a, open a store, they get real benefit mm-hmm. um, from foot traffic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. people saying like, oh, I've heard of these guys. Actually, now I want to stop in. So I don't think mm-hmm. it's, ne- I, I don't think it's a bad idea. I just think you've got to be at a certain, I I think you Mm -hmm. have to be at a certain level of brand awareness before it starts 
making sense. I personally don't think my brand is there yet Mm -hmm. where it would make sense for me to hang my own shingle. I think it makes way more sense for me to partner with the Target and Altas of the world Mm -hmm. um, and benefit from their traffic (laughs) and their volume. Um, But I do think I, I, I get it because, again, what they're trying to benefit from is foot traffic. I mean, my guess is the Warbies that you've seen open, the Allbirds you've seen open are oh. in very mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. high foot traffic um, areas. And that's what they're trying to benefit from the same way that I'm trying to benefit right. from the foot traffic in a in a target. Um, and they are making the bet that that foot traffic plus their brand awareness is, is what's going to bring people in. And ultimately, that is going to be lower customer acquisition cost um, than being digital only. Um I think it's a risky bet, but I do think it makes sense. And, you know, these guys are public, so it's a little bit different when you're public. But I will say this for those of us still Mm -hmm. private and raising money um, privately, uh, investors Mm. can be swayed by things like that. Right. So, okay, you're not profitable, but you're opening these new doors and it's in these high traffic areas. So, you know, you're not just focused on digital I like that. That feels like the right move. So I'm going to continue to put money in your brand. Um, So some of it to me, I think, is just trying to assuage the the investor market. Um, But it is risky. It it certainly is not where I see Minted going anytime soon. I'm much... We both went to Harvard. Allbirds has a store in in Harvard Square now. Um, And I feel like if I've learned anything about Harvard Square, it's that retail there it's kind of notorious for turning over. I feel like the the square now is totally different from, you know, when I was in school a little over 10 years ago. Right. So I just look at that and I'm like, is this real? I mean, there's certainly yeah. a lot of foot traffic from people who are actually in Cambridge from people who come in from Boston, from people mm-hmm. who are just pure tourists. Like there's definitely foot traffic. So that is right. But also like that retail is expensive, <laughs> that space. Um, so I just, you know, like sure if Adidas is. can't stay there, I remember when Adidas was in Harvard Square, like if Adidas can't afford the rent and the only thing that can afford the rent there is like, I think it was replaced by a bank. Um, like is Allbirds really going to be able to hang? I don't know. It just seems a little implausible to me. Yeah. Well, this is what I'm saying it to me. I do think a little, uh, this is a bit trying to appease the investor market. Like, oh, mm-hmm. you're saying D to C is dead. Okay. Don't worry. I've got mm-hmm. these stores. So now give me your money, right? <laughs> like, don't worry. I'm not just, I'm not just online. I, I'm like, I've got these stores, which by the way, stores are still mm-hmm. D to C. Mm-hmm. If it's your store, it's still D to C. But again, right. I think people, when they say D to C, they're conflating right. it with like digital D to C. Um, I, 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 I tend to agree with you. It's a hard thing to get right. And it's easy to open too many doors too quickly. We've watched Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. a lot of companies do that. (laughs) Like Starbucks has opened too many and then had to pull back. Uh, Target went too deep. I think they went into Canada, had to pull back. It was like, turns out nobody in Canada wanted to shop there, I guess. Um, You know, we've, it's a tale as old as time. You you get a little bit of interest in your stores and then you're like, great, let me double it. Let me triple it. And then it doesn't end up making sense. So yeah, it's just, it's a risky play. And I verdict KJ. My verdict is D to C is not dead. (laughs) And I'm very happy. I'm saying this on the record on a podcast because in, you know, six to 10 years time when D to C is still thriving, 
it will be said on the record that K.J. Miller never stopped believing in the strength of D2C, but I do think brands will evolve. It's dead either. Kinks to work out, but it's not dead. Totally unrelated. My mother, Mm -hmm. after listening to our um, metaverse episode, said to me, but Danny, can't you imagine trying on a dress in the metaverse? Like, wouldn't that be better than just online shopping, but also better than having to go in store? Like you can try on your dress in the metaverse. Like, isn't that amazing? And I guess similarly, you could pick out your washer dryer in the metaverse. Anyway, it wasn't so appealing to me, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. maybe that will be the, maybe that will be the death knell of retail, <laughs> the metaverse. Maybe that that someone needs to go tell Mark Zuckerberg this has gotten one seventy-year-old Russian woman right. very excited, and this is your angle. Lean in. <laughs> <laughs> There you have it. Okay, folks, it's time for Judge and Jury. If you're new here, this is a segment where we dive into recent news and ask whether this is a display of good or bad judgment. KJ, take it away. We got to do this really quickly. (laughs) Really quickly. This week we're asking, is Harry and Meghan's new documentary a display of good or bad Judgment. Now, for those of you who don't know, their documentary just released on Netflix, and apparently they're diving into it all. They're they're talking about it all. Their time in the royal family. I mean, they're still a part of the royal family, but their time, you know, with their titles, Her Royal Highness, His Royal Highness, you know, doing the tours, doing the things, what they experience, so on and so forth. Presumably, we'll also get a look at, mm-hmm. you know, just their, their everyday lives now. Um, and I've seen a lot of people hating on this decision. Um, people saying like, oh, I thought they wanted privacy, but now they're doing Netflix deals and documentaries. Or, you know, mm. I thought they wanted to pull mm. away. I thought they I thought they were tired of being royals, but all they seem to talk about is being royals. Like, you know, I'm just seeing, I'm seeing a lot of hate. What, uh, so is this bad judgment? Are they essentially opening themselves up to more criticism or is it good judgment? Well, like, we don't pay enough attention to the the drama with the Royals as much as I should. It is does feel like it should be up my alley. Um, so this is my like gut reaction, which is I think let them do whatever they want to do. You know, like the Royals, the firm is very much a business, but also their family dynamics here. And I just think that the public's judgment on what they're doing, like, okay, go ahead, criticize them because they're public figures. But it makes total sense to me that they want, maybe they wanted privacy. Maybe they just wanted to step away from the very real constraints that the firm places on you. And it doesn't seem inconsistent to me to then go ahead and do this documentary um, if that's what they wanted. And it's certainly people are going to be interested, right? Like there's definitely a consumer base for this. So it makes sense to me to go ahead and do this. And I don't know. I don't know. What are we trying to do? Protect the Royal family? Like, who cares? I don't understand. Why not do this? What do you think? I'll be watching this documentary, okay? You do not have to worry about me. I will be watching this documentary. I will be tweeting about it. I will be chit-chatting about it. Yeah. Um, so I think it's great judgment from a business perspective. Uh, you know, their their deal with Netflix, I think, was worth cool several, several millions of dollars. Um, and I also think it's good judgment because, honestly, 
I think we need to continue mm-hmm. demystifying and debunking the myth mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and the mystique of the royal family. Honestly, I feel like after what I've learned from Meghan Markle and Harry about the way that they've been treated <laughs> after watching The Crown, seeing how they out here treating uh, my girl Diana, right. I'm just not very pro i'm not very pro royal family to be completely honest with you and i and i think it's a good thing that we are all starting to learn more about how how it operates because if you're going to be a fan of it right then at least be a fan of what it actually is not the myth of it what it actually is you know and i think that's a good thing particularly given how how many tax dollars you know uh from great britain that these these guys are living off of and all the wealth that they have frankly stolen from other countries over the years like look let's let's mention it all so i'm i'm very pro all right guys that is it for this week we hope you are loving the show and if you are please be sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star review and be sure to follow us on social. I'm Danny DMC on TikTok and KJ is I am KJ Miller. Thanks everyone. Have a great day.